0: Hello, I'm Tessa Richards, one of the BMJ's senior editors, and I lead the BMJ's patient partnership strategy. Over the next year, you'll hear more from me and the BMJ's patient editor team as we talk to some of the key people and organizations who are advancing patient partnership in healthcare. One area where this is particularly important is research. It's now widely agreed that one of the key ways of reducing the currently high level of waste is to focus it much more squarely on addressing the questions that matter to patients and of course the people and staff who care for them. In today's interview, I talk with Catherine Cowan about the work of the James Lind Alliance, which has pioneered patient involvement in research priority setting. And Catherine, who is an independent consultant, has a lot more experience really than anyone of running these priority-setting partnerships. In our conversation, we talked about how these work, the challenge of navigating between very different groups with often very differing views and agendas, and why she thinks that healthy debate on divergent views is no bad thing. Well, welcome and thank you, Catherine, for coming along this morning to talk to us about the james Lind Alliance priority-setting partnerships and it occurred to me that a lot of people won't know who james Lind was. And uh, as I, I gather, he was an 18th century Scottish physician who was the one who actually made the link between um, the importance of eating citrus fruits to prevent scurvy. Have I got that right? I-
1: you have you have and the reason that the James Lind alliance is named after James Lind is because one of our founders Ian Chalmers is a huge proponent of the work of James Lind and he he really recognizes the the debt of gratitude that our society owes James Lind in essentially coming up with what i think many people feel was the first um, ever randomized controlled trial uh, so J- Ian named a number of his projects after James Lind and um, we we've we've kept that name
0: thank you so i i believe that the the history may not of the um the jla priority setting partnerships doesn't extend that far back but i believe it extends uh, back to 2004 and that since then um there's been around um close to 60 of these priority setting partnerships and that's quite a mouthful isn't it psps <laughs> i wonder if you could explain to us um a little bit about the history of the development of these Partnerships and how they work in practice, because the aim is to bring together um, patients and the public with clinicians and researchers to identify unanswered research questions and priorities for research.
1: Yeah, that's right. So so back in 2004, um, Ian Chalmers, uh, founder of the Cochrane Collaboration, um, got together with John Scadding, who's a retired neurologist, but was um, Dean of the Royal Society of Medicine at the time, and Nick Partridge, who was then chair of Involve, the patient and public involvement organisation. And they got together to talk about the issue of a mismatch between what patients and clinicians want research and what was actually getting researched. And this was partly in response to a paper that was published in The Lancet in the year 2000 by Deborah Talon and her colleagues, which looked at that mismatch and identified a significant mismatch in the area of osteoarthritis of the knee between what the health professionals and the people with the condition were interested in and what was actually getting researched. And and the rationale, really, for trying to address this was that you know, with any healthcare condition or area of healthcare, you've got three key people at the coalface. You've got the person that has the condition, you've got the personal people looking after them, and you've got the professionals that are treating them. And they have everyday lived and professional experience of those conditions. But if you don't talk to them about what questions they've got and what research could make a difference to them, you could potentially therefore be missing out on some really important and interesting topics. So that's how the idea came about. And I think we always wanted to make it really clear and continue to want to make it clear. is that This isn't about replacing traditional methods of identifying research priorities or setting research agendas. And it's not about undermining or replacing the other ways in which um, research is developed. It's simply about bringing in those other voices that don't normally get to um, influence the, the research agenda.
0: Yes, I, that's um, which is obviously very important. I wonder, um, given that you've been involved with running these. Um, uh, uh, priority setting partnerships for, for many years now. Can you tell us something about the dynamics of this? Because, you know, getting patients and researchers and clinicians together, you know, there's a huge sort of power imbalance there, or there may be. You know, how do you select who comes around the table, whether you do this face-to-face or online, how you perhaps keep the peace um, and move towards a joint agreement um, on identifying these top 10 priorities?
1: Yeah, sure. So it might be helpful if I just very briefly explain how the process works. Um, it, essentially, the, the, all of the JLA's PSPs, almost all of them have been um, self-starting. So they've come, they've, they've decided that this is something that they want to do. They've got together and they, they've come to the JLA to, to, to use our framework of research priority setting. So there will be a steering group and that will include representation of of patients, carers, and health professionals. But then they're supported by a partnership. Um, So these are organisations and groups that they'll recruit to participate in, but also help to promote the process. And then the the process of getting from establishing the PSP through to working out what the priorities are um, starts with a consultation process. And that's normally an online survey. So, So it's a way of identifying questions. Um, there's then a long process to to check those against the evidence to work out what the questions are, and then there's a prioritisation process again involving patients, carers, and health professionals, and and the prioritisation will normally will go through one phase online, and then we'll move to a final priority setting workshop where the up to 30 people will come together to agree the top 10. Um, you mentioned the dynamics and how we, we manage that, and you're absolutely right, there, there are established power dynamics, you know, the relationship between the practitioner and the patient can be quite hierarchical, but for for the JLA, our process is underpinned by some important principles, and one of those is inclusivity, so we want them to try and be in, as inclusive of, as possible of, of the wide range of patients and professionals um, for whom you know, it, this is an issue. Um, but we also um, are very um, clear about equality of knowledge. So whether someone's knowledge has come from their lived experience or their professional expertise, that is of equal value to this process. And all of our partnerships are chaired and facilitated by an independent JLA facilitator. So if I'm chairing a, a partnership or a steering group meeting or a workshop, I'm there to guide the process, but not to influence the content. And it's my job to ensure that everybody has a chance to have their say and that we don't have um, undue dominance from, from from one voice over another.
0: How have you learned to handle that as a as a facilitator? Um, are there examples where in some priority setting partnerships where agreements have been reached very readily? And can you think of other examples where it's there seem to be you know, poles apart the clinicians and the patients on what they consider to be important. I just wondered if you can give us any sort of textual insights um, from your experience as a sort of facilitator.
1: Yeah, um, of course. I mean, the, the just off the top of my head, the, the one example of a, a partnership where we reached consensus very quickly at this final workshop was Prostate Cancer Partnership. Um, and for some reason, they, they there was consistency throughout the day in terms of what people were thinking but i don't necessarily see always see that as a positive i, I think if, if we go to a workshop and everyone agrees immediately it makes me wonder if we've really recruited a diverse range of opinions you know, we can look on paper and see that we've got a diverse range of professions or or people you know, backgrounds or you know geographical locations ethnicity age and so on but if, if everyone's opinions are the same that that worries me a little bit and, um, you know, we, we, we've certainly had workshops where people don't fully agree. And that's the nature of consensus decision making. It's full of compromise. It's full of pragmatism. And I always say to people, if you know your top 10 is not going to be the final top 10, because everyone hopefully will have a different top 10. But if one or two questions that are important, you have made it into the top list, then that's a real achievement. Um, but ultimately, you know you you may have one or two people going home feeling that that final list doesn't reflect their their personal preferences um, and i guess that's just the nature of um of democratic consensus decision making
0: yes i guess i'm sure you're right but i just uh, one thing that strikes me is that uh, it's uh, a a pretty skilled job i imagine being a facilitator in this sort of situation in a workshop and i wonder what led you to um Become one, you know. What is what is your background and interest here in, um, you know, partnering with patients to uh, define the research agenda?
1: Well, my my professional background is in social research and qualitative research, and um, I had. Before I went freelance, i was working for I've been working for a, a lobby group, and before that, ch- um, a consultancy where I was I had an interest in social exclusion research and housing homelessness research. But what, one of the things that's always interested me is, is how we can develop ways to enable people, ordinary people, to contribute to public policy debate and to contribute to the decisions around the things that affect them. I think you know, people's experience is so... is I think especially as a qualitative researcher experience is such interesting and useful data and i'm really fascinated in finding ways to to use that and to use people's good and bad experiences to to make a difference and i mean my my journey into the james intelights was was really i mean it was quite random i didn't i have no background whatsoever in healthcare or in medicine and i but i had years ago signed up as a lay member of a of a board subgroup for the UK Clinical Research Collaboration. I'd just seen another in the paper, and I thought it looked interesting. And I was at a conference to do with that, and I bumped into somebody called Lester Furkins, who at the time was chair of the James End Alliance. This back in 2008, and at the time it was the process was still evolving, and they needed someone to come along and observe a meeting and help them to document and evaluate what was happening. And, and I, it just grew from there, really. Um, I helped them to develop their guidebook, and then I got involved with facilitating the partnerships. So I'd done a lot of facilitation already as a, as a researcher, as a focus group and so on. But I guess this was a little bit different because it was within the context of a, of a framework, of a fixed process. Um, but I, I really love it. I, I, I really enjoy the final workshops because... They're unpredictable. Um, you, You people come there with their own agendas, very fixed on what they think should be important, often very different views to other people sitting around the table. And the way that we run the workshops enables everyone to have their say at the beginning. So everyone knows that they've been heard and they've heard everyone else. And it's very interesting during the course of the day to see how people move from being one individual making decisions based on what they know on their own, to being part of a team that are making decisions together, which may involve some compromise for the individual, but it's about the greater good of that team. So eventually being part of a larger group who are making decisions that are going to be um, useful and will have an impact on an even wider community of interest. Um, And I think it's, I I love seeing that, that trajectory throughout the day. Often people arrive at the start thinking it's going to be frustrating or or it's not going to work how are we going to prioritize 30 questions and then choose 10 but it, it it does work the process enables people to to work through that and to work together as a team.
0: Well that's that's um it's that's good to know and good to hear that the, the enthusiasm for this and and this sort of mutual opening of eyes and sort of a more co- sort of eventually a sort of collegiate approach but what does occur to me is that these Um, take over 12 to 18 months and uh, to run they're, they're quite sort of time and personnel intensive and I believe they're quite costly. So I was wondering firstly who bears the cost and the second point I wanted to ask you is it's one thing refining these research priorities but of course it's another thing ensuring that the research actually gets funded. So do you have any information on how much um, notice is taken by funders of these defined research priorities? So that's two questions, starting with the cost.
1: Yeah, so to put it in context, the the James Alliance infrastructure is funded by the National Institute of Health Research Evaluation, Trials and Studies Coordinating Centre. In terms of the priority setting partnerships themselves, they're self-funded. Um, so they may be um, a collaboration it would be organisations from the same sector that have got together because they want to pool their resources and set priorities. Or they could be single research organisations, research charities who are happy to fund the process. So the JLA estimates that the cost of running one of these partnerships is around £30,000. Mm-hmm. Um, some have been a lot less than that. Uh, But some have been a bit more. And it really depends on the scope of the project, their ambition in terms of how wide they want to reach, how many people with whom they want to engage. Um, Sometimes there'll be plenty of in-house resource, for example, for administration, um, websites, meeting rooms and so on. And sometimes there isn't. So so that's why there isn't a fixed figure. Um, And the total cost for many of our partnerships has varied quite widely. But you're absolutely right. There is a cost implication. It's not completely free to do. But of
0: course, but I guess what the argument surely, I guess, here is that 30,000 is... Is not a big sum if you're thinking about trying to um, counter the enormous um, amount of waste in research. Um, uh, and if you can use this information to make it better targeted to meeting and answering the questions that matter to patients, that that's that's money well spent. So the next question really relates, as I said, to um how much. Funders then take up these questions and seek to address them because just because these priorities have been identified does not, as I understand it, mean that there is a guarantee that those subjects, those priorities, will get researched. Is that
1: correct? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. And and this is the million-dollar question, and I wish I had a brilliant answer for it. And um, I think I think, I think one thing that it's worth noting is that. Um, the partnerships identify priorities. So we don't go out to researchers. We don't go out to people and say, what are your research questions? We we make sure the language is very inclusive so that people don't discount themselves because they don't know about research. We just want to know about their, their experiences. So, so what gets prioritised are broad, hopefully researchable topics that people have said they want the answers to. There's then an, a, a second stage beyond the JLA process to work out... How those need to be researched to work out what the, the kind of perfect research question is, what the methodology needs to be, um, and, and then what process needs to happen to get those out to, to the researchers. And I think many factors are going to affect whether or not those questions get, get picked up. But there are examples of, of priority setting partnerships that have worked very effectively with NIHR to get their priorities addressed, um, the childhood disability priority setting partnership for example they they've had um, several priorities addressed not just within their top 10 but beyond that also the schizophrenia partnership most of their priorities have now been addressed um, the other I guess conduit for these priorities is research charities and in a way they can be more nimble I think um, around how they um, embrace and address the priorities so for example um, Fight for Sight to research charity the MS Society Autistica which fund, funds autism research they all ran priority setting partnerships in order to work out what they should be funding, so to inform their their research strategy.
0: Given the concern, um, not least voiced by Ian Chalmers and the Centre for Evidence Based Medicine in Oxford and the BMJ about the high level of waste in research, do you think there's any evidence from the work of the James Lind Alliance priority setting partnerships that the agenda has shifted and that it really has delivered or does, you know, deliver promise for a research agenda which is more focused on issues that, that matter to patients. You know, is it possible to identify tranches of research which have been less useful and bring to the fore tranches which appear to be more useful for end users?
1: It's a really good question. I, I I think it's too early to give a really comprehensive response to that, but but we do know and we have looked at the nature of questions that emerge from JLA partnerships compared to what's getting funded out there, both in terms of commercial trials but also within government funded research. And we know that the kinds of questions that are coming from JLA partnerships are still less likely to be researched than drug trials and so on, things that patients often are less interested in. So I suppose what it's telling us is that we, we're we on to something. The, the knowledge and the, the views that are coming from priority setting partnerships is suggesting that there is an unmet need. Um, I I I don't know if we can yet say how far the needle is shifting in terms of the response to that. I think it's something that we do need to look at in a few years time and find a way to evaluate comprehensively. Yeah,
0: that's a, that's a really important point. So it's changing the agenda, but it's not necessarily shifting the response to the agenda as yet.
1: Yeah, I, I think what, um, one of the things that I, I worry about sometimes with um, the notion of how we evaluate the success, the success of the JLA is how we define that success. Because you could, you could have a, a, a brilliantly run priority setting partnership that comes up with some, some very clear priorities. And then if, if they don't get research, is that because they weren't good questions or is it because there weren't the researchers to do them or is it because the funders still weren't interested in what patients and clinicians were saying? It, it's, you know, our, our, our best output would be that the research gets done, but if it isn't, I don't know what that's suggesting.
0: Yes, do you think there's a case for, for sort of strengthening um, patient and public rights in, in, in research then? Because if you, if you involve them and they influence the agenda, but the agenda gets ignored by funders and policymakers. That's a problem, isn't it? So, d- d- do we need more advocacy to um, push this agenda? Um, the response to the agenda.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think we do. I, I think um, you know the, the JLA process takes us up to a point where we've identified the priorities. But then there's the work to turn them into research questions. And I think we need to ensure that the patient voice isn't lost within that work. You know, what, what, the, what people were saying when they put forward their questions is a nuance that isn't isn't lost as we translate them into researchable questions. And I oh. think also that there is a role for um for, for patients and, and carers and clinicians in um in putting pressure, I guess, on funders to to take note of the priorities and to, to use them. Um and I think where I've noticed that where Partnerships are coordinated by established research charities, they often have the means to continue that work. I think it's more of a challenge for the, the rarer diseases or the more disparate groups that, um, that aren't based within a permanent home.
0: One thing it did occur to me is that if you could explain, say I'm a, a patient with a particular condition or a GP with a particular interest in one, can you go and track the... Um, Evolution of a priority setting partnership in an area that you're particularly interested in, you know, um, can you follow a process over the and the debate over the 12 to 18 months or not?
1: As, as someone sitting outside of the steering group. group. Hmm. Oh, yes. oh, yes. I mean, we we um, we encourage our partnerships to be as transparent um, and communicative as possible about what they're doing. So. Um, you know, they'll, most of them will have a website. We publish their protocols on the JLA website. Their surveys, where they go out and ask people their unanswered questions, are generally publicly available. They're not just sent out to particular groups or limited mailing lists. You know, we want to get them out as far and wide as possible. Um, and then with the priority setting, obviously, there's a limitation to the number of people that can come to the final workshop. But the interim priority setting, where we, we get it down to a shorter list to take to that workshop, Again, anyone can do that if they have experience of that that condition or they you know, have experience of treating it. So, so I hope that there's something for everyone along the way, and we do encourage our partnerships to, um, to think about the use of social media, to think about their communications, to, to keep people engaged, and to to ensure that they not only influence it but they're there to, um, I guess, champion the the results at the end of it as well.
0: Yes. I I, I guess I wanted to ask you, you've now, um, you've recently had a meeting where you discussed what I believe are around 60 of these priority setting partnerships. And I wonder if you could just briefly say, you know, what are the sort of learning points from that experience and how do you see these partnerships developing in the future? Will you carry on as you are or are there new things ahead?
1: Well, well, I mean, the, the meeting that we had was, um, it was it was it was a really exciting opportunity just to sort of pause and um, and reflect with members of the JLA community on you know how, where, where we'd come and where, where we're going next. Um, and actually, one, one of the key issues that we discussed at that meeting was around our definitions. So when the JLA started, we, we talked very much about treatment uncertainties and we had a process of checking uncertainties against systematic reviews and guidelines and as as time has gone by the research landscape has has changed there's other funders of research out there there's other programs within IHR not just interventional research programs and 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 there may be issues and questions that patients and clinicians are interested in that perhaps aren't addressable through for example a randomized controlled trial or or need other types of evidence to to um, to answer that so we discussed at that meeting whether or not the JLA's definition of an of an uncertainty or an unanswered question is still fit for purpose. And the message that we got at that meeting was that we we need to adapt and evolve it, and we need to develop something that's that's able to be shaped as appropriate by each of the priority set of partnerships. So that felt like a real watershed moment because, in a way, it was undo it was unpacking um, a really fundamental. Definition within within everything that the JLA is about, and I, and I think that we will see some significant changes there in in the next few years.
0: Do you mean in terms of is it that people are less concerned about treatment uncertainties and are more focused on how care is designed and delivered?
1: Um, yes, all of the above. So I think for some healthcare areas, treatment perhaps isn't necessarily the the, the key issue so for example with our um, site loss partnership we had a, a subcategory on cat we've prioritized questions around cataracts and there's a perfectly good treatment on cataract but what people were really interested in were things like cause and prognosis and care. Um, and so what, what's important for the JLA to remain relevant I think is to ensure that what we're helping people to do is relevant to them. It's not for us to decide what the limitation of their process or the type of research that they should be looking at should be. But I think our, our role within that is to be, um, to I guess, to help them to sense check, to help each partnership to sense check the the breadth of its scope, so that they don't end up trying to set priorities that become unmanageable, or or indeed are um, you know are not going to find a a home within a funder or a research community at the end of it.
0: You've been listening to Catherine Cowan share her experience of running patient priority setting workshops for the James Lind Alliance. I do hope you found this interesting. Now, for a good example of how better conversations, more in-depth conversations between patients and doctors are driving change, do read our Partnership in Practice article in BMJ Opinion. This charts how a patient-led charity, the UK Idiopathic Intracranial Hypertension Society initiated a collaborative research project with the Department of Neurology at the University of Birmingham. It did this in response to a very common concern that patients have about the stress and pain of having to undergo repeat lumbar puncture. As a result of this collaboration, the charity is now funding, independently, a james Lind Alliance priority-setting partnership, and as Catherine said, you can actually keep abreast of what's happening with this via their website. Well, we'll be back with more of these interviews, so do subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on the next one. I'm Tessa Richards, Senior Editor at the BMJ and Patient Partnership Strategy Lead. Thanks for listening.